Welcome in to Locked On Knicks. And no, you're not hallucinating. This is our second episode of the day. If you want to go check out our recap of the Hawks game from earlier, but we decided to drop a little NBA draft conversation too today and do a little double drop day today and tomorrow. So keep your eyes and ears out today and tomorrow. There's going to be two episodes per day because we're trying to get some draft content in before the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. But that, of course, brings me to what we're talking about today. We have Ricky O'Donnell from SB Nation on the show. He is their basketball writer and editor and honestly one of my favorite draft guys out there. And Gavin, today we're talking about the cream of the crop in this upcoming NBA draft. Yeah, we talk about the opening weekend performances for Chet Holgren, Paulo Banquero, and of course, Jabari Smith, the strengths and weaknesses that they flashed and why his number one prospect might surprise you. All that and more right now on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes right now. All right, welcome in to Locked On Knicks. We want to thank you guys for making Locked On Knicks your first listen today and every day, whether you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform or whether you're checking us out on YouTube where you can, you know, see our smiling faces every day, see Ricky's face today. And, uh, you know, that that brings me to, well, first, who are we? I'm Alex Wolf. I'm editor-in-chief of Nick's site, The Strickland, which you can find at thestrick.land. He's Gavin Shaw, your favorite play-by-play broadcaster's favorite play-by-play broadcaster. But most importantly, we're joined by our esteemed guest today, one of our favorites that we always have on around draft time, Ricky O'Donnell of SB Nation. Again, he is uh, an NBA writer and editor for them and also, to me, one of the best draft voices out there. So we're super excited to have him back. And with that, I won't hold this up anymore. We'll get into this episode with Ricky talking about some of the best prospects in this year's draft. All right. As promised, we are joined by Ricky O'Donnell. He is a basketball editor and writer at SB Nation. And I might add, has been one of my favorite draft guys for quite some time now for a number of years. Uh, Ricky, we're coming off of, I think, one of the more fun first weekends of the NCAA tournament in a while. How are you feeling after this first weekend? Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you you know got to go outside yesterday, which is like a big thing after four days spent indoors, <laughs> glued to a screen. Uh, how are you doing as you recuperate heading towards weekend two? I'm doing good. What a fun first four days of the tournament. Uh, the West went chalk and then pretty much every other region had chaos. I think that's kind of what you want in the NCAA tournament is upsets early, but you still want the top teams, the top players to advance in the bracket so that uh, the final rounds remain compelling. And I think that, you know, the bracket we have right now in the Sweet 16 offers some potentially very cool matchups. We could get a Paolo Bancaro versus Chet Holmgren rematch in the Elite Eight. That would be awesome. We could get the first ever Duke versus North Carolina NCAA tournament game if they both make the Final Four. To have that potentially be Coach K's last game, that's a wow. super spicy storyline. 
so I think that, you know, the field that we're left with after such a crazy first four days remains a very intriguing one, and uh, it should be a really fun rest of the tournament. Yeah, yeah, so I, I mean, there's there's a lot of intrigue going on. Uh, you know, there's you mentioned uh, Paolo and and Chet. You know, potentially having a matchup in the cards. Uh, obviously, Jabari Smith, who's considered one of the other like big three in the draft, gets eliminated. So I think there's probably some some intrigue about the number one pick. Uh, before we get into specifics on the the various guys and their tournament performances. Right now, just after this first weekend, who is currently trending as your number one pick? So I've had Paolo Bancaro as the number one pick since the preseason. I was very tempted to change it going into my last mock draft, which I published just before March Madness. But I stuck with Paolo. I do think that Paolo and Chet Holmgren are a really good one, too. I think that those, to me, those are the two guys who would be in the top tier of this draft. Uh, I do think that it can, you know, potentially go by team as to who you're going to take with that number one pick. But I have a preference towards Bancaro. I think it's fair to point out that he's probably been the most disappointing of the three players at the college level who are in contention to go number one overall between him, Chet and Jabari Smith. Uh, but I think that like his game is a little bit more suited for the NBA. He offers some more shot creation than the other two guys. So I've been a fan of Paolo. Uh, I, I definitely don't think that it's a lock in that there's like a no-brainer guy who should go number one. I don't think that there's anyone who's in their own tier in this draft. Just my opinion. I know a lot of people have Chet in his own tier or uh, some people are strongly in favor of Jabari Smith. I guess my lukewarm take to open this up with is I think between Jabari, Chet, and Paolo, you know, you, you fast forward seven years from now, I would not be surprised if any of those guys ends up being the best player from this draft class or the guy who we look at in hindsight and say, well, obviously he should have been the number one pick. People were overthinking it with this player. I do think it's going to come down to, you know, individual skill and body development and team context. And that's the case for the draft pretty much every year. But those three guys, uh, I, I do think are all like worthy number one picks in a sense. And uh, I, have, I have a preference towards Bancaro right now, but it's pretty close between him and Chet for sure. Well, then I, I guess I guess that's the logical place to start off. What did you make of his performance against Michigan State? I thought it was interesting in that, like whatever your preconceived notions of him were going in, and again, I mean, based off of a much larger sample size, like whether you thought like, all right, this this is like he's sort of your prototypical NBA wing, or if you thought like, oh, he's sort of like a little bit of a tweener. I don't know how often he can win one on one. I have questions about the jump shot. Um, I, I felt like you could have like solidified your opinion in either direction, but overall I came out of it with a positive take. I mean, I, I thought he threw like some really nice passes, um, over the course of the game. And though there were a couple of plays late where he seemed a little indecisive, like the one where he just ended up kicking it to Jeremy Roach and like, didn't really get anywhere, but he also had like that really nice, like just put his head down, like little Euro step into the lane. And you're like, Oh, that's, that's sort of what you want from like a giant NBA wing, the ability to that kind of footwork and, and to actually like leverage his size in a positive way, which like conversely, we've seen Jabari and Chet, at least offensively, have some issues with, but all long-winded way of saying, uh, how would you feel about his performance against Michigan State? Yeah, I think you touched on a lot of good stuff there. Ultimately, Paolo's one of these guys who's so big at 6'10", 250 pounds, and so naturally talented that he sort of leaves you wanting a little bit more. Not to compare him as players to these two guys, but it was similar to Anthony Edwards and Ben Simmons, I think, uh, at the college level, just being able to like cover the draft for the last few years. Those were two guys who were obviously so physically talented 
And yet at the college level, you're like, shouldn't you be a little bit better? Uh, Paolo does have some of the same vibes around him, I think. But uh, as you mentioned, I really do think he put some of his strengths and his weaknesses on display in that round of 32 win over Michigan State. Uh, you know, coming into the year, I really expected Bancaro, one of Bancaro's biggest strengths to be his passing ability. And that's why I, you know, had him atop my board coming into the season. Well, as soon as the year started, it really looked like he was trying to channel his inner Kobe or something like a lot of ball holding, a lot of jab steps. It was a little bit disappointing because on the high school tape, you saw a guy who really was able to like read and react quickly when he was on the floor. Uh, you know, you, you wonder how that happens. Like, is it the case of like the pandemic sort of interrupting his senior season of high school and just like the available gym time he's had? That's something every player in this class and in the next couple classes really is going to have to deal with just in terms of their linear development. Uh, and then you all also wonder, like, has has like a trainer been in his ear sort of overtraining him on some things? Like when a player like him is so willing to go to like multiple jab steps is his first option offensively. It's like, come on, man, just like make a decision a little bit quicker. Uh, with that being said, Paolo Bancaro has shown how good of a passer he is, in my opinion, over the last two months of this season in particular. And you saw it in the Michigan State game. Like for me, I like him number one because I think he has the highest creation potential of any player in this class. He's really the only guy I could see uh, at least between Holmgren and Jabari, like he's the guy who you could see being a top option. Whereas I think that Chet and Jabari are going to need a to play with a great guard who can create good looks for them offensively. Uh, you know, perhaps it's it's a little too rosy view of his game, but I do think that Paolo is the sort of guy who can consistently create an advantage off the bounce and is a good enough passer to find an open teammate and uh, put the ball where it needs to be. So I thought his passing was really good against uh, Michigan state. What do you have four or five assists in that four game? Yeah. Uh, you also got to see some of the mid range scoring ability, which, you know, in today's NBA, we've uh, discredited the mid range to such an extent, but in over the last year or two, I feel like what it's really come down to is like the mid range shot is a good shot. If you can make it enough to make it worth it. Right. And it's, really becoming like your best player gets to shoot from mid-range. And then the role players are the ones who have to space the floor and sort of open up those areas for your star. If Paolo is a guy you're seeing as your top option and your star, I think his mid-range game can be really, really good at the NBA level. You saw that from early in this college season with Duke. I remember that first matchup against Chet and Gonzaga. Uh, Paolo just looked unstoppable in the first 20 minutes of that game before he started cramping up. So I thought that uh, Bancaro showed a lot of his offensive strengths in that game, the shot creation, uh, the live dribble passing, which, you know, is, is something really impressive for a guy that size at 6'10", 250, some of the mid-range game. And then, yeah, like he had the one baseline drive late in the second half where guys just bounce off Paolo when he drives. He's just like too big and too powerful for that not to happen. Uh, certainly not a perfect player by any means, but, uh, you know, his overall – combination of size and skill to me it's just like he is probably the closest thing to a primary option and star in this draft offensive star at least 
All right, we're going to come back and we're going to get into some conversation on Chet Holmgren. But before we do that, uh, I wanted to remind you guys about prize picks. All right, NBA fans, are you looking for a daily fantasy option for the NBA? Then you need to try the award-winning app prize picks. Prize picks is daily fantasy made easy. I love it. And we know you will too. It's super easy to use. You can pick two to five players and an over under on their projections, and you can win up to 10 times on any entry. And it's just you versus the projected numbers. So entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. PrizePix offers a variety of options, including props from points scored to rebounds, even steals, and they even allow mixed sport entries. You can bet the over-under on uh, how many terrible moves the Yankees will manage to make before opening day uh, versus the number of games that uh, R.J. Barrett will score 30 or more points the rest of the season. I'm just making that up, but there's similar stuff on the site. And PrizePix doesn't just offer NBA. They have options on college basketball, college football, NFL, MLB, soccer, MMA, and more. So for limited times, PrizePix has an exclusive no-brainer of an offer for all of our users. Users get $50 for free if a player in your first PrizePix entry scores a single point, but you must use code NBA. That's right. This is an exclusive offer available to Locked On fans. Sign up today and use code NBA for $50 for free if a player in your first prize picks entry scores a single point. It's so funny just listening to you describe all that. It's so similar to like Julius Randle on the Knicks. I knew you were going to say that. I knew we were going to get <laughs> yeah. the Julius Randle comparison. And it would just, I mean, if the Knicks are in agreement with you that he's the guy, if the if this becomes the, the first lotto that the Knicks win since Patrick Ewing, and they end up in, let's say, even the top three, and Paolo becomes an option for them, I think it's going to create this really interesting situation for them where they have to decide, like, all right, do we want to basically go for the younger version of Julius Randle and and get rid of our current version because this one has more, you know, uh, opportunity to potentially, uh, you know, get better than the current Julius Randle, I guess. I, I guess my question would be, like, and then we can move to the other top three guys, but... If that situation did present itself, and let's let's just say even that the Knicks are at pick three, right? So, you know, and let's say that like Chet and Jabari go one, two for whatever reason. And so they have Paolo looking at them. Or a guy like Jaden Ivey, who I think, you know, I think that he's done some things to insert himself into that potential, you know, top tier discussion. But, you know, most people seem to view him as like just a, a small step below those top three guys. If you're the Knicks, do you look at that and say, you know, you basically have to get rid of Julius Randle to make a, a Paolo Bancaro work, or do you look at that and say, uh, maybe there's a way that they could work together? Or, do, like, is it kind of an either-or proposition at that point? Yeah, I mean, or you could just take Jaden Ivey, right? I think Jaden mm-hmm. Ivey's awesome, too. And mm-hmm. if you were to say that you think Jaden is the best or the second-best player in this draft class, I'm sure we'll talk about him more lately, but I would think that's a totally fair opinion. I wouldn't, like, write that off as being... Some crazy opinion. Really, if anything, Ivy to me seems like the guy where, you know, seven years from now, we're going to look back and you could be like, oh, well, he was just hiding there in plain sight the whole time. Like, how did how is this not the guy that uh, didn't ultimately go number one? So it would be an interesting decision. I mean, if they were to take Bancaro, I don't love the Julius Randle comparison for Bancaro. I think Bancaro is a little bit bigger. I think that uh, he's just a little bit more dynamic as an offensive player, but... Yeah, there, there obviously are are some similarities between the two of them, just as sort of a shot creating fours. So uh, I think that you probably would have to move Randall. 
if you took Bancaro, but that is a really interesting discussion point. Uh, and it would be fascinating to see, you know, if the Knicks would go with Ivy or someone else in that spot, uh, or if they would go Apollo just because of what's on the current roster. But I would also think too, like how close are the Knicks to being a really good team? And I know they had home court advantage in the Eastern conference playoffs last season, but to me, it seems like the Knicks are probably pretty damn far away from being a legitimate contender in the East. Hopefully, R.J. Barrett's a building block. I think that he's made some strides this season. So, you know, pair him. But you probably still need a, a star bigger than R.J., right? And the Knicks are going to have dreams of landing a star in free agency. Uh, I was going to say that, you know, if the Knicks got the first pick, you probably you probably favor Chet over uh, over Paolo just because I feel like the Knicks can probably land – a big star and they wouldn't really need to put all their eggs in the, in the basket of the draft, but it would be fascinating for sure. If the Knicks had to, had to, had a chance to draft Paolo and what they would do with Julius Randle. And I don't think there's a super easy answer, but uh, I also just wonder like how much is this current Knicks roster worth uh, emphasizing when you're looking at something like the draft and you're taking, you know, the best 19 year olds available. Right. And it, and it creates like almost like this interesting, bigger philosophical question where if you're saying, all right, like this isn't immediately a championship roster. Do you take, I mean, at least the way you're framing it, that star swing on Paolo, or do you say, Hey, however we decide to build this Chet can fit in on any team, whatever, like even, even like the low, like the floor version of him is like a real asset on basically any team and Jabari, like a, like a six ten like elite shooter. That's a guy who you can plug in on any team. Versus Paolo, like, all right, maybe we have to build this a very specific way around him. And I, I'd be curious if him and RJ's games overlapped in some of the uncomfortable ways that we've seen RJ's and Julius's games overlap, like just trying to get to the same spots on the floor and it being a little bit of a your turn, my turn thing. And just one of those guys needing to emerge as a good enough shooter that you could fit both of them together. Um, all, all interesting questions, all, all contingent on the Knicks getting lottery luck that they are just not destined to have, seemingly. Um, but let, let's 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 continue to be in a make believe world where the Knicks uh, could potentially move up in the draft. And let's let's talk Chet a little bit. Um, did anything about his performance against Memphis um, swing your opinion on him? And again, like I mean, it's that sort of classic question: like, how much do you overreact to to one game and, and one game where I didn't think he played particularly poorly by any means, um, but maybe just showed like a little bit of some of the offensive limitations and frame limitations that people are concerned about. And it was obviously it was, it was clear down the stretch for Gonzaga. Like when the going got tough, it was, it was Nem Hard and it was Timmy. Like Holgram was, was sort of an afterthought. Yeah. I thought Chet played pretty well, but for sure. I mean, he really wasn't looking to score very much. He had a few times where he was isolated out on the perimeter and he, you know, wasn't attacking the basket. He took a couple threes that were just kind of like prayers. Basically, they weren't really rhythm shots. So I do think you saw some of his uh, offensive limitations in that game for sure. But man, the opening like four or five minutes of that game were really impressive for Chet on the defensive end. I thought, you know, he's so skinny, but he plays so physical. Like that's the that's really the truth of Chet's game. Everyone discounts uh, how he can hold up inside just based on his frame. But if you watch him play, he is so tough and so competitive uh, protecting the rim. You saw him deny Jalen Duran several times uh, in the opening stretch. And honestly, Duran, who I who I like quite a bit, too, in this class, he did a great job on Chet uh, when Gonzaga had the ball, I thought. So, you know, Chet's one of those guys where uh, – 
he's not going to be the primary scoring option on any good team. You're going to need a shot creator, multiple shot creators, maybe with him, but he just sort of boosts everyone else around him by being a really strong two-way player, by spacing the floor and by making the quickest decisions of any of the top guys in this draft. You'll see Jabari and Paolo both sort of hold the ball. Sometimes the offense stops when it hits their hands. That does not happen with Chet. Chet keeps the ball moving. Uh, you know, he's pretty, he's a pretty decisive player in general, I think. And he's someone who doesn't get down on himself when, uh, you know, he has a poor possession. So there's a lot to like about Chad. I did think that that game showed that, you know, he's just not going to be a huge scorer at the NBA level without someone who can help him get easy shots. Uh, but he does bring so much else to the table that I think the Chet is just, uh, He's a plain and simple winning player at the NBA level if you can put the right pieces around him. All right, we'll be right back with Ricky to talk some more Jabari Smith and Ricky's favorite moment of the tournament, which, not going to lie, I sort of hijacked with my favorite moment, St. Peter's, New Jersey Pride, all that good stuff. But uh, first, I got to remind you all, today's episode is brought to you by Bilt Bar. And you guys know the drill. Bilt Bars are the best-tasting protein bar on the market. If I haven't drilled that in your head by now, let me just tell you again, all Built Bars are covered in 100% natural chocolate. You just saw one in my hand if you're watching on YouTube. They look like a candy bar. I'll tell you, they taste like a candy bar too, especially Built Puffs. They're like the most mind-bending thing. It's a protein-infused marshmallow, and it's not super high in sugar. And I don't even know how that's possible because marshmallows like literally are sugar. And yet, Built Puffs are just, like, so freaking good. There's cinnamony churro flavor. There's coconut marshmallow, which you guys know my love of Almond Joys. So that's, like, a, a big selling point for me. You get banana cream pie. All the flavors of Built Puffs are so good. They're going to be your new favorites. But honestly, all Built Bars are fantastic because the normal ones, too, nice and chewy. Some of them have chunks of nuts in them. They taste just like a candy bar but without all that guilt because Built Bars only have 130 calories four grams of sugar, and four grams of net carbs compared to a whopping 17 grams of protein to help you recover from your workout. So if you want to get some Built Bars for yourself, go to Built.com and use promo code LOCKED15, and you can get 15% off your order. Again, use promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at Built.com. So how do you feel about him positionally in the NBA? Because I think it's pretty intriguing. Obviously, just height-wise, wingspan-wise, rim protector-wise, you know, he profiles as a center. But the, those size limitations, I mean, I, I agree with you. I actually, I came away pretty impressed from the Memphis game. You know, I looked at it and I was like, this feels like a test. You know, like Jalen Duren is another, you know, top prospect in this draft. You know, a, a lot of people had him, you know, in their like top five or so going into the year. And some people might even still have him around there, depending on how you feel about the role of like the traditional center in the NBA. But like, I mean, I thought that I thought he held his own well physically. He sort of proved that it doesn't matter if you can back me down. I have like a million foot wingspan and can just reach over you and block you with good timing and, you know, good anticipation of what you're going to do with the ball. Uh, but, you know, then there was the, you know, the the moment where he got the, the flop warning for, you know, <laughs> taking the big hit from Durin, you know, the big butt moment and Holmgren just kind of went down like a like a, you know, sack of potatoes there. Um, I don't know. All in all, I, I kind of just find myself thinking, like, could he play the four at the next level? Because I think that that 
could alleviate some of the concerns with, you know, the, uh, is he going to bulk up enough conversation, you know, and some of the things you said, like he can handle the ball, he can pass, you know, he can shoot the ball. Certainly. I, I think that there's, as long as he can sort of keep up with some of the more perimeter oriented fours in the NBA, I think there's a case where maybe he could play that position, but how do you feel about him positionally? If, you know, again, if we're going to frame this in a Knicks context, let's say that they decide, we'd like to re-up Mitchell Robinson, you know, and they luck into the number one pick. Do you think that he could play with someone like that, like a more traditional center in the NBA and and him, you know, move out to the four there? Yeah, I think short term, he's probably a four. Long term, you probably want him at the five. I would say one of Chet's biggest weaknesses is he will get his ankle snatched on the perimeter sometimes. Like, uh, there, there's a few clips this year of him like falling over trying to defend guards on the perimeter. So that's one thing I would worry about with him is like you don't where you want him defensively is at the rim because that's where he's elite. He's very, very good rim protector. One of the best I've seen covering the draft in the last decade. Uh, him defensively on the perimeter, I have a lot more questions. Now, that's where someone like Jabari Smith would shine. I think he's very strong at the perimeter, but on the perimeter, but not as strong at the rim. So I think like long term, Chet is a five because your five is the guy who is historically protecting the rim. But in the short term, I do think he could definitely work with another big man similar to Mitchell Robinson because on offense, he can space the floor. He's been a 40% three-point shooter for most of this year. Like I said, he makes quick decisions. My boy Brian Schroeder, who's on Twitter, Brian J. Draft, made the comparison that he's like tall Tyrese Halliburton, which I really like offensively uh, because Halliburton's one of those guys who's not going to like break you down off the dribble and get consistent paint touches either. At least uh, he wasn't that guy coming out of Iowa State. But, uh, you know, just like spreads the floor, is a great stationary passer. Uh, of course, like he's he's higher in those levels than Chet, but Chet's also seven feet and he's an elite rim protector. So um, I think that Holmgren is just sort of the type of guy that uh, if you put the right pieces around him, he can just take you up to the next level. And in terms of positionality, four or five, I think that you probably start with him playing next to another big man early in his career. But, uh, you know, if Chet is your small ball five option early, like he's going to be able to bring better rim protection skills and instincts than like pretty much anyone else can to that spot. So I I see him as a little bit of both. And that's part of the intrigue with him. All right, let's let's move on to Jabari Smith and another guy who I mean, actually even more objectively so than Chet, obviously at a, at a terrible game shooting the basketball. Auburn, shockingly, at least to me, got ran out of the gym. Um, I did like the other areas of the game that he found a way to contribute, still having 15 rebounds, still having a couple of blocks. I mean, I, I know that's something that I look for when you when you brought up someone like Ben Simmons earlier or like someone like Anthony Edwards. Like I'd always kind of think like when those guys didn't have good – I mean, maybe this wasn't as true for Simmons because he was such a distributor, but like good games using their top skill, for lack of a better way to frame it, at the college level, they would just kind of be silent and absent. And I really appreciated that from Jabari that in his team's biggest game of the season when – I'm sure he was frustrated to the nth degree with Auburn's guard play that has been uh, much maligned and, and wasn't it wasn't great uh, again in that game. Like he still found a way to make a substantial impact. And on the flip side, Ricky, I, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on sort of the weak points of his game because I feel like recently, like as he's sort of gained momentum, um, at least in some circles, for being the number one pick. Like there's something to like the idea of like all right, like this is sort of like the stereotypical guy, like like huge, like lights out shooter, but. The fact that he's under 45% from two, I think ESPN had a stat um, that it was like only 
two other guys in um, – oh, yeah, here you go. Still, Only two players over 6'6 have ever been drafted in the lottery after shooting under 45% from two-point range. That was uh, current Knicks legend Cam Reddish and Zaire Williams-Smith at 43.5% this year. Do you think the weak points of his game have been a little bit sort of underplayed, maybe relative to Chet and Paolo? Yeah, there's a lot there. So first of all, I'm going to say that Auburn was easy to spot as the biggest fraud in the tournament. Like the way they went out was the way you knew they were going to go out the whole time, which is that Bruce Pearl couldn't really get control of his team on either side of the floor, that the guards were going to take a bunch of bad shots. And I saw, you know, the second or third Auburn guard to take a logo three. I'm like, guys, you got to move the ball. You got to get it to Jabari. You got to get it to Walker Kessler. So, uh, I'm not horribly surprised they lost that game, but I do think that that game sort of showed some of Jabari's shortcomings because Jabari's not really the type of guy who can go into takeover mode offensively because he doesn't really create easy looks for himself. My biggest issue with Jabari is it feels like he's a 6'10 guy who plays like he's 6'5". He's very comfortable to take difficult shots because he can make those shots. He's such an elite shooter. He is such a high release and he has such impressive range that, you know, he's been hitting these objectively poor looks his entire life and can hit him at a pretty high rate. So it makes sense for him to take those shots in some sense. Uh, but that doesn't always mean it's good offense, right? And to me, Jabari is another guy who, like, if, he's your, if you're the Pelicans, let's say, to me, like a Jabari-Zion pairing could be really intriguing for them uh, just because... Jabari could space the floor, absolute knockdown catch and shoot guy. He'll hit some movement threes too that are really impressive. Uh, I've seen people compare him to Clay Thompson, but six foot ten. And if that's the type of guy you're getting, and we're sort of like, you know, focusing on his shortcomings more than his strengths, well, maybe you're overthinking it a bit with Jabari. I also think defensively he's very strong in the perimeter. I thought he had a pretty good defensive game against Miami, even though the clip everyone's going to remember is Wong putting him on a poster. Uh, but, you know, even on that possession, like Jabari did a decent job staying with him. He wasn't, you know, worried about his reputation in terms of like getting dunked on. He actually went up to challenge the shot. I thought that was a good sign. So Jabari, I do think, is a really good prospect. I don't think he's the type of guy you just give him the ball and be like, hey, go create something for us. Like he wants to take a bunch of threes. He wants to play out on the perimeter. And when he does put the ball on the floor, he's just not that explosive around the basket, not that dynamic of a driver. But that's also something that like, okay, is what is he, 19, 20 years old? Like that can change in time. Handle is always the thing that college guys need to improve as they go into the NBA. Like if you're a wing bigger than 6'6", chances are your handle is going to be the biggest point of emphasis, I think, in terms of your individual skill development as you go into the league. And the guys who are able to develop that handle – you know, are the guys who become the best NBA players. So part of it's just developing his ball handling, becoming more confident in, you know, creating offense from a standstill. And then I think the other part of it is just like trying to become a little bit better in terms of finishing around the basket, uh, whether that's like adding lower body strength or doing things to make him a little bit more explosive. I think that would help him too, because there's times where he just doesn't have enough like power around the rim to me for someone his size uh, with that being said, you know, I, I wrote earlier this year that he already has a credible case as one of the best 6'10 plus shooters in the entire world at 18 years old, uh, one of the younger players in this draft class. So 
Yeah, he definitely has some defined strengths. If you're a diehard Jabari Smith fan, like, I get it. Uh, the league has really emphasized, you know, just like the percentage of shots you need to take from three just to be competitive in the NBA. And uh, he's an absolutely elite shooter. I'm just not quite there on him as the number one pick because I think you need to pair him with someone who's really good, like in terms of creating offense. Him going to the Pistons with Cade Cunningham, I think would be a pretty dangerous pairing. I think that's a natural fit. I already mentioned, you know, maybe him and Zion, if Zion's actually going to be in New Orleans long-term. So uh, really good player, very strong on the perimeter defensively, uh, which you like about his game. But uh, yeah, I, I do have some questions about how efficiently he's going to be able to score inside the arc. So we have some, we have some other players to get to, obviously outside of the top three, but I want to just kind of zoom out for a second and just ask, what was your favorite moment from the first weekend? And of course, with the caveat of why was it St. Peter's uh, making it to the the Sweet 16? And then, uh, even if it isn't that, I am kind of curious. I, I have a type as far as guys that I like in the draft. And I'll admit, I was not, despite being a Jersey guy myself, I was not familiar at all with St. Peter's coming into the draft. Uh, but having seen Casey and Defo play now, he tickles my like Brandon Clark and Matisse Thibel itch of like a slightly undersized guy that just gets defensive stats like crazy. Uh, so I know it's probably not super likely, but what would it take for him to get a look at, let's even just say the G League or, you know, whatever, like two way contract level? Do you think that's a possibility? But first, I mean, if your favorite moment wasn't the it wasn't St. Peter's, you could say that first. But then, yeah, I mean, St. Peter's might be the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history. I know mm-hmm. it's the second year in a row that a 15 seed has gone to the Sweet 16, but that Oral Roberts team had way more talent than mm-hmm. the St. Peter's team. At least that's what it looked like, you know, while watching the games. You had Max A. Smith, who was a legitimate NBA prospect. Uh, Kevin O'Banner is now a really good player for Texas Tech there in the Sweet 16. They had both those dudes. So to see St. Peter's do this is just like absolutely shocking and so humiliating for Calipari. Like there is no scenario where Kentucky, a Kentucky team with national championship aspirations should be losing to St. Peter's. It's an absolute joke. And, uh, you know, Calipari has got to look in the mirror in terms of like how he does roster construction and how he does tactical adjustments in the course of a game. I thought that was totally ridiculous. And then, uh, you know, if anything, the biggest winner of this tournament has been Shaheen Holloway. I think that uh, he's definitely on his way to a bigger job. The way he's gotten that team to defend and rebound while having size limitations has been super impressive. And then the offensive sets, too. I mean, uh, executed so well, uh, organized so well. Yeah, St. Peter's has been just an absolutely incredible story. And uh, I do think that that he has a shot at the G League, but... Uh, or just like, you know, a summer league contract. And, you know, the tournament will get guys more publicity than any other thing in college basketball. So have a good tournament run. You could really put yourself on the map in the NBA. Uh, does Davion Mitchell go? Where Where did Davion Mitchell go? Number nine last year mm-hmm. overall, I think, to Sacramento. Like, does he go number nine if Baylor loses in the second round? I think he probably goes like 25. And then that run really, like, boosted him up the draft boards. Uh, so there's nothing, nothing better for an NBA prospect than a good run in March Madness. And uh, a couple of the St. Peter's guys have had that this year for sure. All right. That's it for this episode. Again, doing double drops today and tomorrow. So two episodes today, keep an eye out. There'll be two episodes coming out tomorrow. We will be 
uh, recapping the Hornets game for you guys, the second game of the back-to-back, but also dropping our second part with Ricky prior to the Sweet 16 games getting tipped off. So lots of great content for you guys today and tomorrow. Uh, In our second episode, we're going to talk about a wide-ranging amount of prospects. We'll talk about uh, Benedict Matherin of Arizona, who had a fantastic first weekend in the NCAA tournament. Talk about Jaden Ivey, likewise, had a great first weekend. Talk about some of the other prospects, Jalen Duran. Uh, we'll talk about uh, just a little bit of <laughs> a lot going around. Shaden Sharp, who's sort of a mystery man. AJ Griffin, who's sort of a mystery man in his own right, but who uh, Ricky is actually pretty high on. And a, a number of other prospects that could be more realistic in the Knicks range, including Ricky's favorite prospect for the Knicks, which I, I won't spoil and I'll, I'll make you guys listen to the show to figure out. But that's all coming up tomorrow in the second episode of the Double Drop tomorrow. So again, be aware, two episodes a day for these two days, uh, including tomorrow. So uh, keep your ears out. We'll be back tomorrow to finishing up our combo with Ricky and with our recap of the Charlotte game. Till next time, though, peace out, everybody. Talk to you all soon.